In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is and ever shall be. Yeah, that's good. Sometimes we have to have a little fun together. So this morning, because of something I heard, I thought, well, I have a little fun with you. Um, we hear in, our, in our, the hymns of the church and in the theological term, terminology, we hear a lot of words that we don't commonly use, um, especially in the way that we use them, like um, condescension. We say the word condescension a lot. It was a divine condescension. But as we're using words like this, and the choir will laugh with me as they understand what, what I'm talking about, sometimes we hear about the divine condensation. <laughs> and there was a divine cond condensation that came down on Gideon's fleece. But that's not the one we're talking about sometimes when we're, sorry, when we're uh, singing. But that's a common one that we do sometimes. It was a divine condensation, no, condescension. Another one is, there are many hymns that talk about having him being risen from the tomb or the grave or the dead, but he was never risen from the dave. Especially when you're trying to turn the page and it's having risen from the, you don't know if it's tomb or dead or grave. So sometimes you hear Dave, but that's not an official. And then another, here's the one I heard today, which kind of got me going. And I knew I had to have some fun with you. Was uncircumscribed, uncircumcised. That's one that's tricky because in the Bible, we hear about circumcision, you know, all the time. And, but this is one of those terminologies, that, the terms that comes up a lot. The uncircumscribed one take, took the flesh. And we heard in the hymn today what was meant to say by whom the uncircumscribed one was born. <coughs> Talking about the Theotokos. But what we heard was by whom the uncircumcised one was born. He was uncircumcised at the time of his birth, although... On the, he was, as we commemorate on, December, on January 1st, he was actually later circumcised. But anyway, so those are kind of fun to, uh, to be aware of and think about sometimes. As an ex-choir member and um, choir, choir director, I get to, you know, laugh at that kind of thing. So, good not to take ourselves too seriously at times. Okay. So, now I do have a homily too. <laughs> All right. So, beloved in Christ, um, as you've heard in the hymns today, and as you've seen in the icon in the front of the church of Saints Joachim and Anna, today we celebrate the Feast of the Conception of the Most Holy Theotokos. Feast of the Conception. It's one of those, among, um, one of those feasts among which I like to refer to as a retrospective feast. Retrospective, because we understand ourselves to be a remembering community. Kind of brought this up in our last catechism class. Our remembering com community, but far from being subject to, to the, so far from us being subject to the come and gone dead things of the past, we see how God has been living and interacting with people throughout history, longing for their salvation, but not forcing Persons to rend their hearts and to deflate, excuse me, deflate their sense of self. Um, 
the sense of self that can only be sustained for so long until they lose their breath and shrivel up and then allow the true breath of life to be breathed in. We see this in the deflation, you could say, of Saints Joachim and Anna, who were looked at as having something wrong with them because they were barren. They were a barren couple. It wasn't just Anna, you know, who was barren. It was Joachim and Anna. And they both beseeched God, having been deflated then, and beseeched God for His life, for His blessing and for His grace, they became inflated again. His life was breathed back into them. The ever-sustaining and life-giving breath of God that actually restores meaning and purpose and calling to humanity. And the significance of what we remember is maintained in reference to the salvation that God has accomplished through His love for mankind. So that's what significance, that's what is significant as we're thinking about ourselves as being a remembering community. We look back and see what God has done and how He's been working to accomplish the salvation of mankind. And this remembrance forms our identity. This collective recollection becomes a part of the common experience and the inheritance. It's our common experience as Orthodox Christians of all who are being saved. And all these things, they become to be our story. This is our story now, you see. We enter into it and we become a part of this story of God's salvation. This is our ancestry. This is our heritage. And actually, we'll hear about the ancestry and heritage um, that we get to become a part of, that we are a part of over the next two Sundays of preparation for the Nativity. Today's feast is one among two other conceptions that we remember. Do you guys know what they are? Two other conceptions? John the Baptist. That one's the easy one because it's called the feast is called the Feast of the Conception of the Holy Forerunner and Baptist John. Um, what's the other one? The Annunciation. Right. It doesn't have the name Conception in there, but it's one of the three we call conceptions that we remember. The conception of the Forerunner and Baptist John, the Annunciation of the Theotokos, which is the conception of the Lord, our Lord and God and Savior in the womb of the Theotokos. Um, unlike the Feast of the Annunciation, which is exactly nine months in advance of the Feast of Nativity, which we've mentioned before. Um, something sweet about that. It's exactly nine months. Unlike that feast, this one is a little different. The Feast of the Birth of the Theotokos, celebrated September 9th, it's celebrated September 9th, but today is December 8th, isn't it? Is it the 9th? Oh, sorry, I'm getting them mixed up. This is the 9th. We celebrate it on the 8th. So it's minus a day. And this is looked at as a kind of a, a little subtle liturgical um, act of humility, even, to show that the, it's a gesture demonstrating that the Theotokos is not to be seen as equal to Christ. I thought that was really touching. Now this feast is also known in the West as the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, which is something you know, foreign to 
the Orthodox and something foreign to um, Protestantism, unique to Roman Catholicism, I believe. There's a joke, have you heard the joke about the, the woman who was caught in adultery and, he, and Christ says, whoever is without sin, let, let him cast the first stone. And then one stone comes soaring over and he goes, mom. <laughs> yeah. Although she wouldn't, I dare say that she would not cast the first stone, even though she may be entitled to, you know, maybe she may have the right to. But uh, this feast is uh, called the Immaculate Conception in the West. It was to deal with their view that, that all have inher inherited the guilt of Adam, uh, which is passed down from the moment of conception. Interesting. They believe that in, in Adam all have sinned, and therefore the sin of Adam is passed on through man at the moment of conception. And it create, so they had to create a kind of a theological workaround because you couldn't have an imperfect one being the womb into which Christ was born. So I call it a theological workaround for the Theotokos. She was a special one. Somehow they say she was pre-sanctified, you could say, for the specific pur purpose of bearing Christ into the world. For how could one guilty of sin and um, worthy of condemnation and everyone, see in this view of in being an inheritor of guilt automatically means you're automatically worthy of con condemnation. That's not something that we accept, by the way. But how could someone guilty of sin and worthy of condemnation serve as the mediatrix and provide flesh to Christ? But as we heard in Orthros this morning in the beautiful uh, Synaxarian reading, a little, just a tiny summary of, of what we believe. The Orthodox Church does not accept that teaching that the Mother of God was exempted from the consequences of ancestral sin, death, corruption, and sin. So she was not exempted from the consequences at the moment of her conception by virtue of the future merits of her son. So they, one of the ways they had to explain how that could be done is that she was sanctified at the point of conception, based on the merits, the accomplishment of the one who would become her son, and who would accomplish salvation. So there's this <laughs> retroactive sanctification that took place, you know, like time was bent or something. And, um, it, you know, again, it's kind of a theological workaround that happened in the West. Only Christ was born perfectly holy and sinless. St. Ambrose of Milan teaches in chapter 2 of his commentary on Luke this very thing. The Holy Virgin was like everyone else in her mortality and in being subject to temptation, though. And she, um, though we believe she committed no personal sins, she was not a deified creature removed from the rest of humanity. She would not have been truly human if that was the case. And the nature that Christ took from her would not have been truly human either. If Christ does not truly share our human nature, then the possibility of our salvation is in doubt. So then we firmly believe that in the cooperation between God and man, we believe in the cooperation between God and man, right? We believe in the potential of each and every person to be saved by means of his or, own cons his, his or her own consent 
I heard, I, I read a headline. God for, forgive me. It sounds blasphemous even to say it. I read a headline about an academic who said that, that God did not receive Mary's <laughs> consent. He imposed himself upon her. And that's the kind of stuff that's going around, going around out there these days. You know, if the Bible's true, he said that he, he imposed himself upon her and he didn't receive her consent. Well, that is far from true. Be it unto me according to thy word. Is what she's famous for saying. We firmly believe that by exercise of the will, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, our yes to God, our yes, our yes becomes more prevalent and more power in our lives than the illness and the rebellion and corruptibility that we've been born into, that we've been become subject to. And that as we avail ourselves to the incorruptible riches of Christ, of our life in Christ, then we come to be metamorphosed, transfigured. Transfiguration is metamorphosis and transparent to God, even you and I. Even you and I, when we say yes to God, I believe it, when we give our consent. And I want to segue over today's gospel reading because I felt a strong conviction about there's something that's been kind of recurring in my conversation, something I want to share with you. And uh, I think I can see it here in today's gospel reading as well. I'll share this with you. Um, something that's been prevailing in my mind is this conviction I hold that God, the reality that God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And the question of whether or not we really believe that. Does God desire that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? And do we act like that? Do we act like those people who believe that that's true? That's why I said I don't think that she would have thrown the stone if she was there. You know, because I think she had that mind of God that would desire that all would be saved. At today's gospel reading, we have something that I think brings this out a little. I think that this belief is essential to having the phronema or the mindset of the Orthodox Christian. I think that it must become the lens through which we see other people. This idea that God desires that all be saved should become the lens through which we see everyone. Today's Gospel reading we see a miracle and a tragedy. The miracle is that this poor woman who had been afflicted by a malady bent over for 18 years forced to stare at the ground, neglected, likely ridiculed by others, devoid of eye contact, devoid of touch and human dignity. This woman, she was touched by Christ, touched by him. He laid his hands upon her and re he released her of her infirmity. And I can't help but to say as a side note that we see here as all things are reclaimed and restored in Christ, so is the purpose of touch. What do we use our hands for? What do we do? What are we communicating? I'd venture to say that he never touched in order to harm. I would venture to say that Christ never touched in order to harm, except to harm sin. See? He did not touch in order to manipulate or control. 
His touch was always an extension of his love. There was nothing awkward about him reaching out and placing his hand on another person, on their shoulder, on their head. Nothing selfish or sensual about his touch. No agenda, you know. His hands were the hands of love. His hands that are used to accomplish the work of love by means even of physical touch. He touched the untouchables. But that's not only the significant thing, that he touched the untouchables, but that he touched people as an extension of his love. And I, and I think that's something that should inspire us as we consider what we use our hands and our bodies for as Christians. Because salvation isn't merely a theological concept, but it's a restoration of relationship. And relationship is about love. And love entails proper touch. So he reached out his hands and he touched. And he healed her. And in doing so, he released her from her infirmity. And she praised God. This is the miracle. The restoration of touch, of human dignity, even to the broken, who was really never less than human, fully human to begin with. And here's the tragedy. It goes like this. The ruler of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Instead of saying, how glorious are thy works, O Lord. How unfathomable are the mysteries of thy loving kindness. That thou wouldst grant a dear one of thine own to be healed. Even on the Sabbath, what a great mystery. Instead, he was hard-hearted and prideful and even envious. It's interesting to me that, uh, that St. Basil the Great defines envy this way. The striking definition. He says, envy is sorrow over one's neighbor's success. And that the happiness of the other becomes food for the disease and added suffering to the envious man. Unhappiness is the distinguishing characteristic of the envious person. The difficulty with this illness is that, as St. Basil the Great says, someone who's envious cannot even acknowledge it, but hangs his head, is downcast and troubled, and he laments and is utterly ruined by evil. Usually the envious person does not want to admit his sickness or reveal the wound in his soul, so he's continuously miserable. And he continues, envy is sadness at our neighbor's happiness and joy at his misfortunes. Totally corrupting, totally inverting what it is that should be. We should be joyful at our neighbor's happiness and sad at our neighbor's misfortunes. Strangely enough, I see in this indignant one this kind of envy, but I also see it in us. You know how quick and easy it is for those of us who are little more than animated dust, aren't we? You know, 
but how easy it is for us to tower over others and make them the objects of our judgment. Don't we know that God loves them? And of those ones who are failures, whose failures we've so readily acknowledged, what if they begin to succeed? Do we consider it a tragedy? Do we truly believe that people do not change or that they're not likely to change? And then if they do, for the better, was I wrong about them? Which I'm often unwilling to admit. It's okay for us to admit that we've been wrong about people, that we've looked at them the wrong way. And what a tragedy it is for us to find a sick sense of security in the failures of others. What a terrible illness for us to envy when others succeed and are made well. Also, what a tragedy it is when we don't expect that we might change, that we might be, well, be made well on account of Christ, even. Sometimes within ourselves, I think, is housed both the, the ailing woman and the Pharisee. The one whose distortion is so quickly and easily identifiable, bent over and broken. And the one who would rather not see the healing take place because of pride. And it's an irony that pride and envy are allowed uh, by prohibiting healing within the self. They're allowed to prohibit healing within the self. And that we allow them to prohibit the celebration of good in the lives of others. Pride and envy are things that we, they have a, it's a double-edged sword that is kind of jagged on each side and doesn't make a clean cut but does damage. It prevents us from being healed and finding joy in the success and healing of others. And herein lies my strong conviction that if we are to have the mind of Christ, as the Holy Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, but we have the mind of Christ. If we do, then we must also desire that all should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? All. If we view another human being as less than someone for whom God wants salvation, then we need to seriously question our own salvation. We believe in a God who despises not the sinner, but longs for the salvation of all. And thus we also should long for the salvation of all. <coughs> Even the most, the one you think is most despicable. In our own brokenness, in our own insecurity, it's quite difficult to see the other person rightly. I'd rather see others as an object of wrath, perhaps even worthy of hell. But our desire must be that all be made worthy of heaven. It has to be our desire. Um, often lately, those who have been around me have heard me quoting St. Amphilochios of Patmos. He's a recent saint. And one of his sayings, I can, say, I, can, I can say it without crying, barely. He says, my child, I do not want paradise without you. And that's how I want to look at everyone. With that kind of love, that kind of desire, to look at another and say, I do not want paradise without you. It's not 
if we you think about how differently we would view others, if we viewed them as those who were with, for whom at least we desire salvation and reconciliation and heaven and all the good things that life and eternity have to bring. It's not satisfactory for us to be saved while others are yet broken and condemned. This is not a source of comfort for us. It's not a source of comfort for those of, of us who are being saved. We have to look upon even the worst ones and allow our hearts to long for their salvation. No one is immune to God's love. However corrupted he or she may be. If I fail to see the person as anything other than one for whom God and me by extension desires salvation and healing, then I'm the corrupted one, full of envy and inhumanity. But it's not too late to be humble enough to change. Love is the only antidote to pride and envy. Love and humility. I think on the most practical level, we need to begin, begin to find joy in the successes of others without feeling like we have to have any acknowledgement or anything in return. Look for opportunities to celebrate with those in our lives who are doing well. We should celebrate their successes and, and even see that it's our calling to assist in the success and the healing of those around us. Help them to do well. Even if they get the kudos, that's okay. It's good. When we shut off our insecurities and we allow ourselves to see what's good in other people, to admit that, that God truly desires the best, not only for me, but for my brother, my sister, neighbor, colleague, friend, then I'll never hesitate to desire the success and well-being of the other. Perhaps the healing of another person will bring a tear of joy to my eye rather than a tear of self-pity. So let's desire with Christ. Let's desire with Christ that all that is crooked and bent and contrary will be made straight. Let's be quick to desire the salvation of all. To desire that all would come to the knowledge of truth. Let us allow for the healing of our bent perspectives. Which have caused us to find pleasure in judging the broken world that we live in. Rather than sorrowing and longing for its salvation. May Christ our true God whose touch to the woman made her stand aright. And by whose miracle the tragedy of hypocrisy was revealed. May he illumine us and loose us from every bond, that we might desire that all be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Amen.